Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 10 years of law enforcement analysis experience. He was an analyst at both Cincinnati and he was a supervisory crime analyst at Wichita, Kansas. He is here to talk about mentorship, up-and-coming leaders in law enforcement analysis, and next-gen technology. Please welcome Charlie Giberti. Charlie, how are we doing? Doing great, Jason. Thanks for having me on. Very good. Another Cincinnati analyst. So we did not cross paths during our time in Cincinnati, but we certainly were both analysts in Cincinnati. Growing up, quite the Cincinnati School of Crime Analysis, uh... <laughs> Quite the lineage there. Yes. Yeah, so, so when we uh, met at ILEA conference last month, it was uh, interesting just talking to you and talking about all of the different names that we we know the people there in Cincinnati. It was interesting to get your perspective on how things were back then versus how they were when I was there. And I'm still in touch with an analyst who re- until recently worked there as well. So I kind of get to see the whole progression of that department over almost 15 years now. So that was a pretty cool conversation. Yeah, I started in 2008 and I was their first civilian. And so certainly they have uh, spread out since then. So kind of ruined that moment in terms of my first question, but how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? It was, it was a long road. When I graduated from high school, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't even really want to go to college, but my parents kind of forced me into it a little bit. So I Kind of on a whim, I tried EMS and I was an EMT for about six months, but I just really did not like the frequency with which I was getting pooped on. So I decided I needed to do something else. I went and I changed my major to film because I thought that that would be fun. And whereas I still love the, the study of film, I found that I didn't really jive with people I was in class with. And so mm-hmm. uh, one day I went to a guidance counselor and ironically, this is exactly what I said. I said, I don't know what I want to major in. I don't really care. My only requirement was I did not want to take another math class because the next math class I was going to have to take was statistics. And I was deathly afraid of it. Time makes fools with all. A few years later, I was in a PhD level statistics class. And now I do statistics all day, every day. But as she, she happened to throw out the idea of criminal justice. And I said, I don't know. I don't really want to be a cop. I don't really want to be a lawyer. And she said, well, you know, the, the kid who came in here right before you just dropped a really popular class in the CJ program. You could try it and see if you wanted to do it. And so I said, well, what's the name of the class? And she said, serial murder one. <laughs> so at the University of Central Florida, you could take, I think you could take serial murder one, two, and three back in the day. And they had a criminal profiling class and they had a sexual predators class. And so I was like, yeah, of course I want to take serial murder one. <laughs> so majored in criminal justice, graduated in 2008, the absolute worst time to be coming onto the job market as a new graduate was shotgunning application. I was probably applying to 50 jobs a day. And I finally, after doing some volunteer work for the Panama City Beach Police Department as an auxiliary, I got a full-time job with the Bay County Sheriff's Office in Panama City, Florida. And my path to transitioning from sworn to analyst really kind of started when I noticed all of these little inefficiencies with information getting from one place to the next. I will never forget the day that I was parked up with my sergeant. It was the end of a shift. And so we were kind of, you know, talking about, you know, what happened and getting paperwork in and in the middle of the conversation, he just looks at me real quick and he says, back me up. And he shoots across the street and he turns his lights on and he grabs this kid who had been walking down the sidewalk with a lawnmower. Um, and arrest them. And it turns out the kid had been stealing lawnmowers out of, out of garages. And I, I stopped him and I was like, it's not unusual to see somebody walking down the road with a lawnmower in Florida. But I was like, how did you know that that kid had stolen that lawnmower? And he said, well, I overheard a conversation between the last shift right before we started. And I knew the guys they were talking about and I've seen him before. And so, you know, I know that this was the guy. And I thought there's got to be a better, more systematic way to share information amongst the shifts, you know, and I, and I said that at one point, everyone's like, no, you really just got to talk. And like, I, I would go get lists of warrants and people would be handwriting, you know, who has warrants and where they live and stuff like that. And so I kind of started to explore on YouTube, Microsoft access. And I started looking into some of these things. And I remember pitching the idea at one point, like we could automate some of this stuff and it just didn't catch on. So I was kind of frustrated. I wound up going to grad school. I was in the PhD program at the University of Cincinnati for a while. Really loved teaching, really hated the rest of academia. (laughs) And one day I was in, I was kind of in between classes and, you know, that's 
a pretty good relationship between the Cincinnati PD and the University of Cincinnati. And I happened to be talking to a supervisor and I was telling them the story about like, oh my God, it was so, you know, back in the day, we used to hand write these things and there was like no information sharing. And I had this idea that got totally shut down and he happened to say, well, you know, we do that sort of thing. We have analysts and there happens to be a position open. So maybe you should give it a shot. And I had no clue really what the crime analyst field even was or what a crime analyst even did at the time. But I was just so ready to take a shot on something else. So, And who was the uh, supervisor? Uh, that would have been Lieutenant Matt Hammer. Okay. I think is actually higher up now. But I wound up working for Lieutenant Christine Baridi, who I think that she was a visionary. Um, she was totally not an analyst. She's not a data science person. But I think that she understood the, that there's just a ton of information in a police department and they weren't leveraging it very well. But if we could, if we could figure out what that looked like, there would be all sorts of opportunities to solve crimes and to prevent crimes that we wouldn't otherwise have figured out. So uh, I wound up working for her in the intelligence unit, and I was actually the first civilian assigned to the intelligence unit, and my task was NIVEN. So the NIVEN program, for those who don't know, is when you, you know, image ballistic casings and connect scenes based on the same gun was used to both of them. And so these NIVEN leads would come out every day and they would come in batches, sometimes, you know, dozens, and they would be giving us these little tables and the tables would show three crime scenes on different dates. Uh, maybe you've got a gun recovered or maybe you don't, but all of them had the same gun involved. And so the task that she gave me, she said, you know, we've got RMS, we've got CAD, we've got call detail records, we've got LPRs. If there's one connection between these three scenes, I want you to find all the connections. I want you to look at these people's offense histories, even the victims, and look and see who they've been arrested with before, who those people have been arrested before, what groups they're connected to. We want to see if there were cars uh, by both scenes at the same time of the shootings with our LPR data. We want maps, we want link charts, we want all of this stuff. And because I was very young and very stupid, I was just like, oh yeah, that'll be easy, no problem. No, no, no. Yeah. yeah, hold on a second there, because that does get into your analyst badge story. But I do want to ask a follow-up question before we get there. It's interesting perspective that you're bringing because you were an officer and with this interest in data, and then you go to grad school, again, still with this interest in data, and then you come into the analyst profession. And I think that's interesting having those two disciplines with you as you're walking through the door at Cincinnati Police Department for the first time. So just uh, take us back there a little bit as you're bringing in those two perspectives. What what was it like walking into the intelligence units for the first time? So I think having been a cop was very valuable. Having been in academia, I'm not really sure that that was as valuable as, as certainly my boss who hired me thought that it might have been. Having been a cop, there are certain intuitive things that I, there are certain mistakes that I've seen other analysts make that I avoided. Like I was working with one sort of younger analyst and they were doing an analysis for the first time and they got all excited because they were like, oh, I found out that, that, you know, Walmart has a crime concentration on it. It's like, well, yeah, we, yeah. Like we don't need, we don't need a map to know that. So, and there's kind of a culture you fit into a little bit more when people say you've been a cop. So there was a lot of intangible benefits, I think, from having been there. Academia, I remember thinking coming into being an analyst that, you know, I had learned multivariate regression modeling and data cleaning. And I thought that that was going to be like something that really helped me along the way. And it really just didn't come into play. It's a very different world. You know, in academia, you've got these data sets that somebody collected 10 years ago, and you just go and you download them and you transform your variables and you can spend six months writing an article and you're trying to assess causality versus in a police department, it's kind of like the wild west. You've got like, you know, four, five, six different databases with disparate data. It's updating constantly. Nobody cares about a pattern that you found that was occurring six months ago. They want to know up to this morning what was going on. The tools were different. The outcomes were different. So it was kind of a shock, actually, having come from that environment of an academia where I would say it was very tame. It was very calm. It was very slow. It was very, I want to say, I don't want to say easy because certainly nothing that, you know, academics at that level do is easy, but you just didn't deal with a lot of the challenges that you have inside a police department. And then yeah. you layer on top of that, you know, the, the need to turn a product around right now because there was a homicide this morning and we're following up on the investigation. And if you get it to us tomorrow, it's just not timely. And so those sorts of stresses. So it was actually quite a bit of, sh of a shock coming from academia into a police department. Right. And it reminds me of the time that I was in a comp step meeting and one of the captains 
talked about their data being significant. And I just <laughs> had to laugh because I was in, in that setting, it was perfectly okay to use the word significant, but in an academic environment, the whole lot be like, yeah. well, what test did you run? And yeah, what was your alpha level? Yes. Significant, yeah. What did you control for? Yeah, it also reminds me too, of, I had Joe Lorenz, also a Cincinnati analyst on the program too, a couple months back. And he talked about the idea that while he understood that civilians are cheaper and probably the future of law enforcement analysis at a police department, he says it's a lot easier to train a sworn officer to be an analyst than it is to teach a civilian analyst all what a police officer knows without sending them out on the street, for instance. Well, Joe may be a little skewed because he was incredibly gifted at both. So he was... <laughs> He, he was a good cop and, you know, he, he took to analysis very easily. So I think that there's some truth to that. I think it's a real obstacle for police departments to find sworn people who want to learn analysis. And you have to filter out, you know, the guys who just want the easy nine to five. They want to work inside of air conditioning. And also, if you really open it up and you look at the entire data analysis field, you know, you're comparing the guys who went through the police academy and they've been cops to the guys who went to MIT and they're being recruited by Google to do data analysis. And it's, mm -hmm. and I am saying, I believe that there is value to both. I would actually disagree about the future crime analysts. I think that the, you know, to Joe's point, he said it's, it's cheaper to hire a civilian. And it is, there's almost this unspoken rule that you're not allowed to pay a civilian in a police department as much as you are allowed to play, pay a sworn officer. And I found that to be true pretty much everywhere I've ever looked. But the private sector really values the skill set that crime analysts have. They value it a lot. If you think about, you know, Amazon, Etsy, Walmart, all of those are big companies that are dealing with types of crimes that are brand new, that have been invented because they created an online platform that sells globally and warehouses. And so they're dealing with fraud. And when you bring that skill set into a private sector environment, and you're reducing fraud, you're increasing that company's bottom line, not by a little bit, but by the millions and the billions sometimes. So the private sector is going to start very aggressively recruiting and hunting people with this skill set. And I think it's going to be really difficult for police departments to hang on to this concept of a civilian analyst, at least as it exists today. Okay. So in your thought then, because there's going to be this pull of the market on the private sector side, that police departments may start going back to filling the analyst position with sworn officers? I mean, it, it's either going to be that or it's going to turn into kind of a first job right out of high school style position, or maybe an internship like that. I just don't see the public sector with these sort of informal rules around how you're allowed to compensate, but also how you're allowed to provide benefits to civilian analysts keeping up with the private sector. And it's already started. It's, this isn't something that's going to happen down the line. This is something you're dealing with today. The banking anti-money laundering field, the online anti-fraud field, executive protection, insider threat, you know, you're... As a police department recruiting an analyst, you're not just re recruiting against other police departments, you're recruiting against Major League Baseball. You're recruiting against Verizon. You're, including, you're recruiting against Amazon. And the more these private sectors realize the value and analysis and preventing crime and even preventing like government fines for not preventing crime, uh, it's just going to be tough. It's going to be real tough for them to hang on to the civilian talent. Yeah. I think the only government sector that can really compete is at the federal level. And that's one thing that I heard some analysts chiming in on at the ILEA conference is it's a revolving door. They're, they're training these analysts, they're there a couple of years, and then they're moving right on to the federal level. And to your baseball point, it's like they're you know, the farm system for the, the feds and but the feds are the feds are struggling too. You know, it takes two years to hire somebody to go through the background check sometimes to go be an FBI analyst. It can take you a week to get hired to go work for Google. And so like, you know, you drive into DC and from about an hour and a half outside of DC to the time you cross into the DC boundary, you just see these massive houses everywhere and they've got Porsches and stuff parked outside. Those are all contractors. Those are all civilians who have this skill set who went and worked for the FBI for two years and now they make way more money in the private sector. Yeah. So it's it's a problem that's affecting the federal levels as much as it is 
the local law enforcement level. Yeah. I feel that the average criminal justice major coming up still wants to go through that public sector, that you won't oh, yeah. get to the point where it's just going straight from college to the private sector. You're certainly going to have that, but I don't think there's going to be a mass exodus. You're still going to have that path there. And it is going to be up to managers and executives on trying to figure out a way of how you keep these analysts. And, you know, you can talk about work from home. You can talk about part-time and contract models and, you know, creating a career path. And all of those are really important things to talk about and to implement. But at the end of the day, you got to pay for your talent too. And I think that that's a bridge that the law enforcement community at any level hasn't really crossed yet. No, Hmm. definitely an interesting topic and we got many other topics to cover so i gotta move on and i do want to get to your analyst badge story that you mentioned earlier so you're dealing with ballistics you're doing two yeah three four degrees of separation for cincinnati police department you're trying to gather all this data and try to find connections yeah so my boss comes to me and says you know we we have these niven leads they tell us that these scenes are connected by a gun I want you to find the other connection. And so I went and I talked to a current intelligence analyst who was really adept at using IQ analyst notebooks to make link charts. And I asked him, I was like, so how do you do this? And she showed me one on the wall that was very, it was, it was good looking. It just wasn't very big. And she said, well, the first thing you got to know is that this takes time. This particular link chart took me about two weeks to put together. And so I knew immediately the problem was not creating a good link chart. The problem was creating link charts fast enough for them to be timely to go out with a Niven lead. And so the goal was we want a complete look at, at the network of connections, and we want that within an hour of getting a Niven lead. And so fortunately, I, I again, I had none of this skill set when I started. <laughs> I'm coming from academia. You know, we're downloading data sets from ICTSR and running stuff in SPSS. I had no idea how to pull data from all of these different places and optimize it and dump it into a place to be visualized. Fortunately, I had two really great mentors from Shannon Wagner, who was at ATF at the time, and Blake Christensen, who was running the CAPS unit at the time. But Shannon created a very homegrown system basically on the back of Microsoft Access. I think he called it Brass Magic. But the idea was every time he got a Niven lead, he would pull all of those data points into a structured format and then push it across a shared network to me so that I could then dump a completely clean edge list into I2 to instantly visualize that Niven lead. So that was pretty cool. We worked on that together for a little bit, but then the problem is still, okay, so we've got the people involved in the Niven lead and, and, the, and the events uh, and the vehicles, whatever, but we want to take that out further. We want to see, okay, all the previous offenses that that person's been involved in. We want to see the other Niven leads that this is potentially connected to, and that's where we felt like we were going to find the aha moment. And then we wanted to see criminal networks themselves. We wanted to look at things like eigen vectors and eigen values and page rank to figure out who in this network of people that included a shooting are the most important people to kind of take down. And so we created internally this homegrown system that basically took the data that ATF sent us and used that as a, a launching point for a systematic query that went through our RMS system and our CAD system and a few other systems, and then pull more data based off of that and visualize the network. And so the first couple of times we did the send out the Niven lead, you know, put these packages together, we got it down to about 20 minutes. So within 20 minutes, I get a Niven lead. I've got a map that shows where everything happened. I've got an I2 analyst notebook output that shows the Niven lead visualized. And then I've got, we couldn't use analyst notebook for reasons I can't remember, but we used uh, Node Excel was the format we used to visualize all of the victims or witnesses previous offense history and all of the people that they've been connected to. And so about a month in, I was really wondering if this had any value because whereas we were doing all these analytics, we just weren't finding these other connections that my boss sort of thought were there. But then one day we got a Niven lead and it was, if it weren't connected by a ballistic match, you never would have thought that these two scenes were connected. One of them was an older white guy in his mid forties on one side of town. The other one was, you know, a black teenager on a different side of town. So I, for those that don't know Cincinnati, there is a great divide between East and West. Oh my gosh. Yes. No, it is. It's like, I don't know, coming out of the third world and then driving into Narnia. It's just a completely different experience when you're over in Oakley versus whenever you're over in the West Side. But, and then you got to go to the area in between those two places, which is also kind of scary. So yeah, and you know the way that they divide up cases, you've got two different investigators who are investigating these 
two different shootings as if they're completely detached from each other. So I got this Niven lead. I pushed all my automated buttons. I generated my link chart. And whenever I threw these guys on there, I saw their network. So there's just tons of dots and links everywhere. But there was one dot that linked both of these guys together. And so I explored that dot. And the dot was an individual who was a known violent offender, a lengthy history. He was a drug dealer. Uh, and he had been arrested with both of these guys in the past. And when I dug a little bit deeper, I found out that this particular individual had been in prison, got out 24 hours later, the first shooting occurred. And about 48 hours after that, the second shooting occurred. Nice. So we got a guy who's got a previous arrest history with two of our victims who are seemingly unconnected and they had been fine right up until he got out of prison. So I got to walk into the investigators who were, you know, walk into their offices and say, hey, I think I've got some information you guys might want to know about. And then, you know, I believe that that person is in prison now, or at least he was shortly after we generated that link. But it really set me on this path of thinking about crime in terms of networks, thinking about crimes in terms of other connections that may not necessarily be obvious. And how do you automate that process? How do you make that fast enough so that it's timely, but easy enough so that anybody can do it. And that's kind of been what I've been working on ever since then. And even today in my role in data loss, that's what I do. So for somebody that wants to set something like this up, were you able to do most of the automation on your own? Was IT staff helping you? How, how did that process go for you? No, we did it all on our own. And I, I definitely had help from the two guys that I mentioned earlier. So it, it mm -hmm. wasn't all me by any, any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but the process kind of looked like this. We would use a series of access queries and access databases, which has a lot of limitations. And then we also use Node Excel, which is what's free at the time. I don't think it's free anymore, but that also has some limitations. But basically, he would push data to us, and we would treat all of that data like a table. And then we would join it to our existing RMS tables that have other people and other offenses. And then we would generate a table of people and places that were connected to those people and places. And then we would iterate that query three and four times so that every time we ran the query, it was getting one more degree of connections and kind of gluing it to the bottom of this master table. And then whenever the macro that ran all of those queries was done, we had what was a properly formatted edge list that we could then just dump into either i2 or node excel and then it would automatically populate the visual based off of that which was a little complicated to figure out but it's not a skill that you i mean i never i never take i've yet to take a single computer science class i'm definitely not a coder or an engineer or anything like that it was a skill that three guys who don't really have a background in technology could get on youtube and read books and kind of figure out so i think it's a project or a task that most crime analysts would find approachable. Yeah, that's interesting. As you're talking about this, I am visualizing if I had this task today, how would I have put that all together? And I'm thinking, all right, assuming I have a data warehouse, I am pulling in all the different tables into SQL, and I am setting up a series of staging tables to get the data the way I needed to, to order to do that final join to push out that final table that you need to then plug into iTunes. So that would be yeah, that's a, pretty much a how it. process that you could, you could set up in, in, your, in your data warehouse. So certainly a lot of different ways to do this. And you mentioned the limitations of access, but certainly an interesting concept. And it would be interesting to almost, you could almost have a, an I2 chart just going through the data flow of like how, how the data <laughs> yeah. flows together to get to that final product that you're after. And now I get to do largely the same thing, except I get to do it at just far bigger scale. So, you know, now I'm working with the Department of Justice and the Department of Defense. We work with commercial banks and their anti-money laundering unit. So you think about the volume of transactions they have. I mean, it's, yeah. it's millions of transactions a day. And we're not just pulling two gigabytes out of a at a time, which is the maximum of an access database and, you know, pulling the data that we think is significant and then visualizing it. We're ingesting all of that data, and then we've created a system where it identifies the patterns for us, which is a little abstract for a podcast, and I get that. But when you see it at scale and something like that, it's actually, it's, it's really cool. It's fun to be a part of. Yeah. So as you were putting these together, and you're, as mentioned, you can go two, three, four degrees of separation out from an instant people or, or place, 
Was there something that surprised you that turned out to be maybe a rule that you saw or a connection that always seemed to be the case? The thing that became obvious to me and the frustration that uh, that kind of resulted as a part of this was there were always the same people kind of hanging around crime. There was, you know, there were your people who everybody knows, your mm-hmm. trigger pullers, your chronic drug dealers, like you're, you know, the people that every cop in the city has arrested multiple times. But it was amazing to me when I started looking beyond just them and their offense history, there was a list of names that were probably two, three dozen people wide that was like, God, they are just connected to every single one of these people. And so when you dig into those, some of them are just like, all right, well, it's this guy's mom and he lives with his mom. So she's just always kind of around whenever he gets missed an offense. So you can kind of validate this a little bit. But then there were all of these other kind of shadow people over there. And so it it always occurred to me that there needed to be some effort to, and this is sort of an intelligence function, to go out and find those people and investigate those people and figure out whether or not they were, I think John Eck uses in his theory, he talks about people have handlers and places Mm. have handlers. Well, would they be like the sort of darker version of a handler, like somebody who is pulling the strings of a chronic offender or enabling a chronic offender or something like that. And that's kind of like the next step in police department link analysis that I've never really seen anybody take yet. Yeah. So these would be people that if you were to run their arrest history, for instance, they, they would have little to none. But when you're running this analysis and you're looking at the number of people they have connections to that do have a lengthy history with the police department. These people normally wouldn't come up on anybody's radar, but because of these connections, they should. Right. When you look at a crime and you say, I want to analyze that crime, you're kind of saying, okay, I want to know who the offender was, who the victim was, where the location was, the date, the offense type. And maybe I want to know that guy's history. But what I was looking at was instead of looking at a crime or a group of crime, I was kind of looking at this network of people who commit all of the crime. And it's kind of a different way of thinking about analysis. But whenever you do that, and you can do it statistically, you can look for like page ranks and eigenvalues and things like that. But it, it became clear to me that there were certain people that were just always kind of hanging out behind the scenes. And I always sort of wondered what their role was. Okay. Hmm. So if somebody wants to have more information about this, is there maybe some links that we can supply in the show notes? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I did a presentation at IACA on this a couple of years ago. I think I've got that recorded somewhere. Okay. All right. Oh, good. Good, good, good. Let's get that in there then. All right. So you leave Cincinnati to become a supervisor with Wichita, Kansas. And mm-hmm. so it might be obvious was the, the leave to have an opportunity to be a supervisor? Yep. It was for me, I was looking for an opportunity to grow. Unfortunately, the problem that I had at Cincinnati was there just weren't any positions that, that were supervisory positions. There were a few of the people who had them and was like, you know, we don't know when that guy's going to retire. So like most analysts, you get into that spot and you kind of have to go elsewhere. And Wichita was a cool experience. It's, it was a completely different setting for me. So Kansas is pretty far removed, I would even say from Ohio, but very different from Florida as well. But that's actually where I kind of started my progress to the private sector. So there was an idea, you know, Wichita is a top 50 U.S. city in terms of population. It's got a little bit more population than New Orleans, which kind of blows people's mind when you say that because you sort of think of Wichita as being kind of nowhere. But it's bordered by all of these very small municipalities. It's kind of an island. There's not like a metro center there. And so there was this idea that we could really enhance our analytic capability and our intelligence capability if instead of having, I don't know, 20 or so different law enforcement agencies inside this area with different databases, if we found a way to integrate them all. And you know, they had tried this in the past, or at least they had talked about it. I don't know about trying to like get everybody onto the same RMS system so that they were all feeding into the same database. There was some talk about creating kind of like a data lake or a data warehouse where it was all piped mm-hmm. in. And this is where I met my current boss, Mark Massop, who I had met when he was a salesperson for another company. And I was kind of spitballing this idea. And he goes, you know, Charlie, that's kind of exactly what this new company that I work for does. We do database integration. And so it was kind of 
my experience there and trying to integrate all of these different agencies together to enhance our analytics that I kind of came across DataWalk. That project never really lifted off in Wichita. <laughs> um, but whenever it kind of concluded at the end of it, you know, Mark happened to reach out to me and he was like, you know, if you're ever looking to make a change, you should give this a shot. Which was crazy because I had never thought about working in the private sector ever but I saw the impact that they could have on the public sector. And I think the job I wound up applying to was something like software engineer. And it was like, must know Python and must know Java and must know C plus and must have 10 years of Linux experience. They had like 15 bullet points on it. And then, and I was kind of like, all right, well, out of these 15, I maybe, I maybe have one, but yeah, they wound up taking me. I think that we had sort of put together a blueprint for what this software could do for other law enforcement agencies. And that's kind of what sold them on me. And it's what definitely what sold me on them. And so that's how I wound up here today. All right. So is the model then you you pull in data into one area and then it's it's a pointer index system that we're like, oh, by the way, you two have this guy or this gal connected. Kind of. It's actually its own database. And that's kind of the magic. It's both a, a graph database and a relational database existing at the same instance, which makes connections and processes super duper fast, but it also makes it really scalable. So you're actually making a copy of different data and finding ways to transform and integrate it all into one. And so the idea is like, if you wanted to, I don't know, search for a person, instead of going to, I think in Cincinnati, we had like four or five different tables just in our RMS where people information was stored. And so if you've got a dozen police departments who all have a similar RMS, you would have to run a query against almost 50 different tables. But the idea would be to analyze all that data in a graph format, which means that you find a way to standardize all the people and you make it one person table. And then you create links between people in cars, people in incidents, people in uh, places, things like that. And so you kind of, you, you stitch together this sort of graph style database. And then when to research a person, if you wanted to see all of the cars, events, and places they're attached to, all those connections are already made. Yeah. Hmm. Somebody needs to make the pitch to the feds to say in terms of their criminal justice programs to police departments, those that are sign up to be part of NIBRs and, and whatnot to report to the feds that they should also give a benefit to those police departments that allow folks to have back end access to the records management system, right? And encourage vendors and records management systems to, to communicate with one another. Certainly not intelligence information, but I mean, if you have an arrest, which is a public record, and you have people involved in that arrest or that crime, that certainly should be something that different records management systems should be able to communicate. And they can. Yeah, I always, every... Every time I go to a conference and I do something like how to create a CompStat report or how to create link analysis, I always like to make the point of like pointing out that your RM, everyone hates their RMS system. Like no, but no analyst has ever just been like, oh, I'm just totally in love with my RMS. But that's because we're trying to do analytics on it. And that's not what an RMS system was built for. So you can, you know, one of the central skills that I always tell new analysts that they really focus on is SQL, because if you are reliant on an RMS to do analytics for you, you're always going to be severely limited. But if you can pull data out of the back end and put it somewhere else, if you have that skill, then, I mean, you can dump it into Excel, you can dump it into Tableau, you can dump it into Cognos, uh, and you can create these automated systems for sharing that we're talking about. And there are there are grants out there. I think the DOJ or NIJ uh, does encourage this sort of systematic information sharing. It has not really caught on in the mainstream yet, though, I don't think. You are going to be the host of a new video tutorial segment for LEA Podcasts yes. called Small Steps. Just give the audience a little snippet on what they can yeah. expect from these videos. Right. Yeah, yeah. So the idea is is there's a lot of things and in, in without having to sit through an hour long thing to, you know, get through multiple things at once, just a short videos. And kind of the way I, I like to see is hey, like when you're searching for something yourself on YouTube, this or that, what do you, what do you, you get something specific, you get a small piece and it's, it's a lot easier to digest. So I think the idea behind this is, is really, sometimes it might be a, a couple episodes in a row tackling the same type of thing, but it's just a quick, Hey, check it out. Here's a quick tip. Here's how you do it. And for this specifically, it's typically using some law enforcement type data, some data that'll be similar to what you would use and, and how you could use it. 
So like examples, just, you know, text a column or certain formulas, concatenate, VLOOKUP, XLOOKUP. Some of these, you know, some of these, you, you just, like I say, you might not. I'm still, I don't by any means consider myself an expert. Anything to make it easier, I kind of learn at the same time, and I love sharing with other analysts. Not an hour-long class. You don't have to sign up for it. It's not costing you $10 for yeah. stuff you might or might not know. It's just a quick videos, quick tips. Yeah. So so this uh, video series it will release every Tuesday. The first one is a series on text-to-columns. Is that correct? That's correct. If you have suggestions for what you would want videos shown of, uh, whether it's in Excel or Access or SQL or whatever program it may be, send us an email, leapodcasts with an S at gmail.com or give us a, a comment in one of our social media postings. Hi, I'm John. I'm a prime analyst with the Saskatoon Police Service. A public service announcement that I have is for, especially for junior analysts, but also senior analysts, just be true to yourself and recognize that the police culture that you're in shouldn't necessarily shape who you are, but you have something to bring towards your service as a benefit as well. We have a couple of topics here that you want, we want to cover here. So I'm going to move on. And the first topic here to talk about is the importance of mentorship. And this is simply a topic that I've addressed from time to time, but certainly want to give you the floor to get your perspective on mentorship. I think that everybody in the profession should either have a mentor or be a mentor. I think I mentioned my history. I mean, I was in I was in college for, I don't know, something like 400 years before I got into crime analysis. I was in there forever. I had been a cop and yet 95% of what I know that's actually useful in terms of crime analysis, I learned because I was sitting next to somebody who was sometimes with a very great deal of patience walking me through how to do things. Uh, literally everything I know that has any sort of value, I, I got through a mentorship. If, if I've done anything successful in my career, it's because of people like Mark Mathup, Chris Westfall, Christian Echo, Blake Christensen, Nicolette Staten, Catalin Howard, people that I've worked with who taught me something. And you are never, ever far enough along to not benefit from something like that. There are a hundred different tools out there that an analyst might use to accomplish the same thing. One of the things that I think is really impressive is when an analyst walks into a police department and they say something like, you know, we've been accomplishing this thing with Excel, but, you know, I played around with Power BI and I found that that's just way better. So we transition. There are people who don't necessarily know more than you, but might know different from you. And that's really valuable. And then if you are that person that knows something, I've been mentoring with the IACA and ILEA and others for a couple of years now. And I am just amazed at the number of challenges that that has exposed me to. I am grappling with not just data challenges, but you know, helping these analysts through you know, personal problems inside their department that I never had to deal with. And it's made me a significantly better analyst, but I think it's also just made me a better person. So I credit all of my success with mentorship programs. And it's something that I'm always going to stay involved in because I just think that you always keep benefiting from it. Yeah. I think it's interesting because you technically can be a mentor and a mentee. I think it was John Ng from Canada. When I was running the mentorship program for IACA, he was both a mentee and a mentor because he had certain goals that he was trying to achieve. So he was working with a mentor, but he also understood that given how he started and, and, and worked, he could mentor a younger analyst. And so at the same time, he was a mentor and a mentee. I I consider myself the same. There are guys who, I don't know if you would necessarily rate anybody on a scale of who knows how much and always be looking for somebody that knows more. But there are, are people who I have heard speak and I've heard talk on podcasts at conferences. I've seen their publications and stuff. And every chance I get to go hang out with them and hear what they're doing, I love that opportunity because I always walk away with a fresh idea. If I'm ever dealing with a specific problem, there are so many resources to reach out and find a thousand people people who have dealt with that same problem. I was on on a call the other day with an analyst that I'm mentoring and she was dealing with a problem with a macro. Neither of us would consider ourselves coders, but 
we were able to very quickly type the problem into a message board and you know three minutes later somebody just said hey copy and paste this in and then just gave us you know 20 lines of vba code and now the problem is solved so i think that a majority of the learning that's worth doing is is done in one-on-one -on -one situations with people who have overcome challenges that you're trying to get over i agree all right Let's go on to another segment now. We're going to call this segment the Analysts of Tomorrow. And these are analysts that you've identified that you think are up and coming and going to have influence over the future of law enforcement analysis. Yeah, I was kind of inspired by a previous episode of yours that you were talking to Chris Delaney from Esri. I think the, the subject was top five most influential people, maybe in the IACA or just in the field in general. And so it kind of got me thinking, who are the Rachel Boba Santoses in the next 10 years? Like who is it that maybe hasn't made a huge impact yet, or they're just starting, but really is going to be that person. And so the first name that came to mind, Kyle McSatridge from Fishers, Indiana. I met Kyle at a conference in I guess at the time he was with Milwaukee, which is a really big, well-funded department with a lot of history. I and mean, he was at a conference and he, he had like his little entourage around him. He walked in there like he was the rock or something, you know, <laughs> like all these other like younger analysts that were like learning from him or whatever. And so I kind of thought that that was a function of him being at a really great department. But then, you know, just a couple months ago, we were at Ilea and now he's at a small department in the middle of Indiana and it's the exact same thing. He just walks in, he's just got all these people gravitating to him and his analysts that he, I don't know if he would call himself a supervisor or not, but all of the analysts that he works with. They're up there presenting, they're up there, you know, teaching people who have been in the field for 20 years how to do different techniques. And again, they're at a small town in Indiana. So the dude has had a huge impact. I think one of the hardest things to do, like, you know, you've made it in crime analysis when you can walk into a police department, see how they're doing things, evaluate how to make it better, and then actually make that change. That is a very difficult thing to do, especially you're, you know, you're coming in as a civilian, you have to establish rapport, you have to create change, and then you have to sustain change, which are two very different things. So the analysts that I've met that have done that at sometimes a very young age, I just think it's really impressive. So Elizabeth Staffel at Naperville PD, Shannon Strelhoff in Toronto, Amanda Bruner at Matthews PD, who not only imported all of this change to a very small police department, but she's also running a regional analyst association. So she'll be president of something someday. If you ever need a lesson on how to set up an intelligence unit, Akshata Kamavat at Hamilton County Sheriff's Office could probably talk to you for hours just off the top of her head. And so, I, and I've gotten the chance to work very closely with her and kind of see how she's setting up her unit. And it's very impressive. Shannon Kale, she, I, was at a, I was at a conference in California and Shannon at the time was in Wisconsin. And I was talking to the brass track vendor, the, the guys who sell the machines that scan in bullet casings. And somebody got on the subject of link analysis, which of course I was like immediately keyed into. And uh, this vendor said, if you ever want to learn anything about link analysis, you should reach out to Shannon from Milwaukee. And I immediately knew who they were talking about. And I got on my phone and texted her and I was like, dude, your reputation precedes you on the other side of the country. You are nationally known. We had a little freak out about that. And if you're looking for a fun next guest, then give her a shot. But She's in the private sector now, but from the way that she's been talking, think that maybe Intel might be getting her back soon. I don't know. TJ Sweet, I had a really cool opportunity to teach him when he was a freshman at UC. I taught his policing in America class. And there just literally was not a subject that we could bring up and talk about that he hadn't read three or four books on and seen a documentary about and was thinking about writing a dissertation on. And I, I got to see some of the stuff he was doing. I think he was at Detroit PD for a while and now he's in Charlotte, which is another really crime analysis unit. So he'll dominate the world soon. And then the last one I'll throw out is Lauren Finkbeiner at Grover Beach PD. She started out as a mentee of mine and now she is already improving on the products that I taught her how to create, which kind of rubbed me the wrong way a little bit. You should be uh, proud. Yeah, part of me is proud and part of me is a little pissed off. Um, <laughs> part of me wants to tell the world how great she is and part of me wants to put her in her place. But no, she'll, one of those groups of people is going to be president of something they're going to publish the next great book in crime analysis they're going to do something amazing yeah it's it's fascinating what the next 10 years is going to look like for this profession and just so much is changing there's so much more data and which isn't necessarily better <laughs> for this profession yeah. but certainly interesting to see how it's going to change and to see how these folks are going to influence it. Yeah, to your point, there's kind of this, you know, you mentioned more data and there's kind of this old school mentality of how we work, where we, everything is desktop and we query everything down 
and we dump it and we make a visual. I think every software company is moving away from creating a desktop product to creating a comprehensive solution. And part of that is the ability to ingest and handle more data, the ability to not just be your link analysis tool, but also your querying tool and your matching tool, and not just be the thing that you use for CDRs, but also the thing that you use for RMS. And so that transition, I think has already begun. I don't know that we've necessarily seen a police department that does it to best practices yet, but whenever they do, I think that that's going to be kind of the next big thing that catches on in the industry. And I wouldn't be surprised one of those people were the one to do it. Hey, if you know these folks or you have other folks that you want to add to this list for the analyst of tomorrow, please email us at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Or if you see one of our postings, leave a comment below. All right, Charlie. Then the, the next topic we want to cover is this idea of analysts going into the private sector. And we certainly talked about it a little bit in terms of the progression of analysts coming into the police department, maybe going federal and then going even to the, to the private sector. And so you wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about what the, the private sector can offer. Yeah. So I think I got to a point in my career where I was hitting a ceiling and my initial first thought was, okay, well, I need to look for another police department. And the more I thought about that, the more I just realized I was, I was going to run into the same things at another police department. And I really just needed to expand my search. And since then, you know, I've started working for DataWalk, but also that role has given me the opportunity to work alongside some of these units who are doing things like money laundering, like fraud. And I've gotten to see analysts in positions that I just never knew existed, tackling crime problems that I didn't know the world had. You know, my first week on the job here, my boss came to me and he goes, hey, you know, we're talking to the U.S. Department of Agriculture and they want to see how you can use this software to help fight illegal lumber trafficking. And I was like, what? <laughs> well, well, what even is that? You know, I've gotten to meet analysts who, you know, do intellectual protection for Disney. And they're finding people who are distributing Doctor Strange before it comes out in theaters and stuff like that. But there are a couple of lanes that I would encourage any crime analyst to look at. There are industries out there in the private sector who would really value your skill set that I think that we do a very poor job in professional associations of kind of bridging the gap, bringing those people in so that we can learn from them, but also advertising what our people can do for the private sector as well. So every bank for instance, is required to have an anti-money laundering unit. After 9-11, they expanded the Bank Secrecy Act and they put the onus of investigating, preventing proactively and reporting money laundering transactions on banks. And they hand out big, big fines. This is how different it is to be an AML investigator, an AML analyst than it is to be a crime analyst. Uh, AML? US, yeah. What is AML? Anti-money uh, anti laundering. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, US Bank got like a a billion dollar fine a couple of years ago because for not maintaining adequate AML analysis capacity. And specifically what they did was they had a bad quarter or whatever, budgets were tight, so they put a hiring freeze on analysts. Well, how many police departments out there, times get hard and they put a hiring freeze on? You know, every police department employee I talk to says, yeah, you know, we've got, you know, room for a thousand cops, but we're down 300 because they put a hiring freeze on. Banking AML units are not allowed to do that. <laughs> they, they have to maintain adequate staffing. They have to maintain great technology. They have to maintain best practices. Uh, and they have very big data challenges. But at the same time, it's largely what we do when we do comp stat. It's largely what we do when we do investigation uh, and intelligence analysis. It's finding patterns. It's finding who the bad guys are and it's suggesting ways to intervene. Commercial anti-fraud or even government anti-fraud. You know, COVID introduced all sorts of new government benefits. We finally know for sure we're gonna find that a majority of it went to fraudsters. Well, the way that you tackle that problem, it's a, it's a data problem. You have to find the concentrations, you have to find the connections, you have to find the email address that was used to apply for, you know, 1500 different paycheck protection program applications. You know, you have to, in the commercial world of anti-fraud, you have to figure out who it is that's getting all of the property that, you know, gets shipped away from Amazon and then they get a refund. You have to analyze entire networks and figure out okay, which of these problems are little problems, which is a teenager who is getting fraudulent refunds and which of them are, you know, impacting the company to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. And then you have to put a case together. 
and prosecute them. You know, there isn't a police department, there isn't a federal agency that can collect all of that data that might span three or four different countries and several months and and do that type of analysis. That's all private sector. So AML, fraud, and then if you go to IACA and everyone who's listening should, and you walk around the vendor hall, every single one of those vendors, if, if they know what they're doing, is going to be looking for people who have not only hard skills that help them make software, but also industry experience. People, that's, you know, that's my job. I basically get to sit with, you know, people that do lumber investigations and intellectual property theft and fraud and money laundering. And I get to sit with the analysts who, you know, try to confront those problems and figure out what their workflows are and then show them how that could be better with this particular product. And the only way you get that knowledge is by having struggled as an analyst with some of those problems yourself. So there are, are a lot of opportunities out there for crime analysts to go into the private sector. There's a lot of benefits to going into the private sector. I've actually thrown out an IACA presentation proposal with a friend of mine who works for another company, conference. So, you know, conference committee, if you're listening, I really <laughs> appreciate the opportunity to broach this further. Building off of what we talked about earlier, there is a lot to offer on the private sector side. And I, I find it fascinating when I think back about it, especially since COVID. I think one of the pre-COVID, one of the aspects that maybe prevented some folks from going to the private sector is this idea of increased travel. Like they didn't Mm. want to get in the private sector because it would require a lot of out out of the city travel, overnight travel, you name it. But as we all know, since the pandemic, this idea of working from home, this idea of being able to do your job remotely has taken off. Now you can do the majority of your work at home. And I think that's again, going to bring more people uh, over to the private sector in the future. Well, I mean, the, the there is a element to in-person communication where you're building a relationship that's really tough to do remote. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, nothing is really tough to do remotely. You know, we've done enterprise level deployments with law enforcement agencies in other countries where they're integrating, you know, you know, eight, nine different databases, and they're bringing in six or seven different units with different functions to all operate on the same system. And we did all of that from, you know, our independent living rooms. I did all of that with my fuzzy slippers on. So, <laughs> uh, and I don't think that this work from home thing is going to be limited to just COVID. I think that it's it's going to be kind of a status of operating now. And I don't think that law enforcement agencies are going to embrace it. So No, I, I agree. There's They're already pulling folks back where I think the private industry, you know, where I work, pre-COVID, I was the only person on the team of 10 that worked remotely. Now, every single person that's on my team, all 10 of us are working remotely. And yeah. basically... Oh, we don't have to rent out that office space anymore for these analysts. Oh, that's great. We don't have that expense. We can have them all work from home and we, there's a cost savings to the business. I mean, the cost savings for overhead. Yeah, absolutely. But then also, I mean, are you, are you going to get your best employees back if you tell them that they have to start commuting for an hour? both ways now, you might not in 2022. Like there might be a cost in terms of personnel by putting that out there as well. No, if, so. they, if they have the option, right? If, the, if there's an option to work from home and get a higher salary and have a greater influence, like you mentioned, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to offer there. And, you know, I, I actually have two jobs right now that I work completely remotely. You know, academia went to a lot of remote coursework. You know, a lot of these online investigations jobs that we're talking about are entirely remote. There's no reason to bring them in person. Yeah, I, I will admit it makes me a little sad and this is going to turn me into old man elder, but... I I wish people would stay longer in the public sector because I think there's so much there that could be done to to better that particular department, that particular city. And certainly I, I, I can't criticize people too much because I went to the private sector, you know, as as well. When I hear some of these big names in our profession leaving the public sector for the private sector. It does make me a a little sad. And my hope is that 
maybe, just maybe, that there would be a curve back that so people go to the private sector for years and maybe once they're ready for retirement, maybe once they're five years out from retirement, that they go back and spend five years at a police department in the public sector to work on a project there and to bring back what they had learned and to influence that particular department in that particular city. I'll say this about that. First of all, going private doesn't necessarily mean that you stop working in the public sector altogether. I I get to work with four or five different local or state level law enforcement agencies every single day. And I get to see how they do investigations and I get to suggest ways to improve it. So there's kind of this perception that like you get a lot of action, you know, working in a police department, working public sector, and you get away from that in the private sector. That's not necessarily true. But then also, you know, I, I just can't help but point out there's, it's no secret why the private sector sucks away the best talent from the public sector. It's pay, it's benefits, it's culture. And regardless of how convoluted your government bureaucracy is, whether you are city or state or national, there is someone in that organization who can snap their fingers and make anything happen. So all of these agencies that are losing these people and perhaps bemoaning the loss of their best talent, there is somebody who could, at a moment's notice, make the change that all of a sudden now they're competitive with the private sector. And they just haven't done that yet. At least they haven't done that yet in the aggregate. So it's going to be very interesting in the next 10 years to see if it becomes more and more difficult to keep up and we see that change or if it becomes more and more difficult to keep up and we see people throw their arms up and say, okay, we quit. Yeah. I think no matter what, when you're talking about public sector versus private sector, if you're going to continue in the public sector or you're going to come back to the public sector from the private sector, you're essentially going to have to give a hometown discount, right? <laughs> I, I feel that there's most likely there's going to be something where you're just going to have to say, you know, if I'm going to continue down this public sector path in the lifetime of my position, you're going to have that many opportunities to grow. And I think that the, the private sector is always going to be easier unfortunately. That is true. I, I don't think that it's the responsibility of government leadership to all of a sudden start dishing out more money than the private sector can. But consider the size of the gap. You know, if you are an intelligence analyst and you work for Google, you have the opportunity to go up and be a division head for Google or Microsoft or Amazon. You know, you could be you know, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 layers of management up from that entry level position versus in you know, law enforcement agencies, you're an analyst, maybe you have a supervisory civilian position, maybe you don't. I know that there are stories of, you know, civilian, you know, captain equivalent. Those are pretty few and far between. So consider the career gap of somebody who goes to the private sector and they progress and they're promoted five or six times with one of these huge companies versus somebody who stays in the public sector or comes back to the public sector in an entry level role. That's an enormous gap. And that's, that's a problem that police leadership is going to have to find a way to solve. Yeah. And I and I think that's definitely one thing I'd like to see in the next 10 years is more analysts getting into executive roles at police departments. That I think would pay dividends for the profession. And that's seems like a big ask right now. I know Noah Fritz comes to mind. I mean, he's in an executive position right now uh, in Virginia. And I, I really would like to see more analysts work their way up and have spots at the table on executive teams at police department. No, I absolutely agree. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, all those are great conversations. I, I appreciate the insight. Let's move on to personal interests. Yeah. And because uh, that's one I always like to finish up the interview with. And I got to ask about the obscenely pretentious taste in beer is what yeah, you have yeah. listed as a personal interest. Yeah, there's a point where you enjoy beer and there's a point where beer becomes a hobby. Uh -huh. uh, and that point for me was Black Friday about five years ago. So <laughs> coming from Cincinnati, Cincinnati is the best city in the world for beer. I was um, just thinking the same thing. Every time a gas station closes, they shove a couple of distilling 
things in there and, and, and turn into a brewery. You can't throw a rock and not hit two breweries in Cincinnati. And they're all fantastic. So I, w- I had been into crap, but where the switch flipped was it was Black Friday a couple years ago. And so I had gone out with my family. They were doing some shopping. My dad and I were done. So we just happened to park ourselves at this bar. And my dad said, you know, we like really dark beer. Do you have anything special? And the guy gave us Goose Island Bourbon County Stout, which we had never had before, but it was amazing. And it was incredibly strong. And so we both got a little bit looser than we wanted to be. (laughs) And my dad is not a spring chicken anymore. So the next morning I woke up and we both just looked like death. And we were like, wow, that's just, that stuff hit really hard. We weren't expecting that. And my dad's like, yeah, you know, I'm, you know, I'm too old for this, you know, things hurt, but I, but I want to go back to that bar right now and get more of that stuff. So we went back again and we got more of it. And, you know, we were kind of saying like, where do we go to find this? And the bartender was like, oh no, this stuff comes out once a year on Black Friday and that's it. You can't find it anymore. And so after that, for me, it was just kind of a fond memory of the time my dad and I went and drank together. Yeah. But for my dad, it became an obsession. And so the next Thanksgiving, we have a whole bunch of family over the next morning, I'm out running in the Florida heat. So I'm, I'm sweaty and I'm gross. And my dad pulls up in his Jeep Grand Cherokee with the tires locked, just like pulls up right behind me. And my dad, my mom is in the back seat clutching her purse. She looks terrified, doesn't know what's going on. And he says, hop in the car. And so I jump in the car and the man has mapped out every store from Daytona Beach to Orlando that sells this stuff. And they limit it one, per, one bottle per person. So we went in there, we got the rest of my family members together. So there's four or five of us. And we walked into each of these liquor stores one at a time and each bought one bottle and we filled the back of that Jeep Grand Cherokee. So like ever since that day, it's become kind of kind of a hobby to go out and try to find something that is that good or better. Something that is obsession worthy. Oh, I love the fact that he essentially counted down the days and had the strategic plan of how well, he was going to accomplish his goal. <laughs> he, he had called managers. He knew how many bottles were going to be in and what time the stores open. And he he had a plan. Yeah, the only thing better than that is if he actually had a link chart. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I should. Oh, I didn't even think about that. That'd be perfect. I got to get him working. Yeah, making a link chart for us. Oh man, that is really good. So then, do you have a do you have a beer right now that you're obsessing over? So I'm very excited that IACA is in Chicago this year because mm-hmm. Chicago is home of the Goose Island Brewery and they make bourbon County stout and they change it every year. And every year it's more amazing than the year before. But if I had to give a competitor, if there was a contender for the throne, it would be a Bottle Logic Fundamental Observation, which is made in Anaheim. Uh, it's a close number two, but typically I want something that's... Uh, and it's like, it's a real, it's a real brutal hobby to have because the minute you find something special, the minute you're like, oh, wow, this is, this is up to the standard. This is just as good. You find out that that brewery shut down two years ago and you'll never see that bottle again. Yeah. Uh, it's a harsh mistress. Yeah. See, I think there's value in it being remote and being limited. Yeah. But not the least of which is because I would have been dead already if I could drink it every day. So. <laughs> So it's good that it's hard for me to find. Excellent. Well, all right. One more on personal interest. You're part of an American history book club. (laughs) Yeah, this is definitely the nerdiest thing about me. Yeah, it started during COVID, but it's still going strong. It was, I had read a book called 1776, which is, uh, I would put it in top five best books I've ever read in my life, but it was so much fun to read. I wanted somebody to read it with me so we could talk about it. And so I blasted it out on Facebook to see if anybody wanted to join a book club. And, you know, being in the first couple months of COVID, there was tons of interest. And I think we had like 30 people on that first meeting. It's down to like four now, but you know, <laughs> me, and the, me and those same three guys were just trucking along. So we're at, we started with the Ponce de Leon and the Age of Exploration. And right now we just got up to the War of 1812. So Pretty good progress for two years, I think. Yeah, that is pretty good progress. So uh, what's the most interesting thing that you learned so far? The most interesting thing, the, the French and Indian War up through the first year of the revolution is the most fascinating period of American history. And there are so many American heroes in that time period that no one ever hears about. So for instance, John Stark, uh, you know, John Stark was, you know, kidnapped as a child and taken by Indians and they tried to make him run the gauntlet, which is sort of an initiation. And he took an Indian's weapon and he beat them all with it. And then he just went and kind of like made a house for him among these Indians and they kind of respected him for it. And they, 
they tried to make him a farmer and he threw all his farm equipment into a river while he was singing a song about how he was going to kiss all of their wives. They wound up, they wound up making him kind of like a captain. And there's all these great stories about how, you know, he was, he was camping with them on a raiding party and a witch doctor saw a snake crawl into the tent or into the area. So he said that it was a bad omen and that the raiding party was cursed. So John Stark went over and bit the snake in half or something like that. And then he wound up being you know, a general who pretty much saved the early American Revolution at Bunker Hill. He showed up with his, you know, not even really an army, just a couple bros from Massachusetts or Rhode Island or wherever he was from. And he saw that the the British could flank the American position by this little beach. So he just went and set up an ambush and was wound up being shipwrecked in the Caribbean at one point. Like the dude just led an amazing life. Uh, and I had just never heard of him until I started picking up these obscure books. Yeah, it's it is fascinating when you hear wild and crazy off the wall people have such an amazing talent and can influence different I, stuff. We talked about baseball earlier. There's a whole history of like crazy baseball players from the late 1800s to 1900s. It's like really off the wall, batshit crazy people, but they could go out and throw a baseball and pitch a no hitter and all this other stuff with all this baggage and craziness going on around them so the the same thing i it doesn't surprise me that there's you know john stark who has this probably just a little off the wall you would see him as like oh i don't want to hang around this guy but at the same time (laughs) he led he he influenced the whole history of our country by some of the acts that he did the 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 fun fact you learn about the guys that are revered too like George Washington, I guess when he went to go take command of the, the forces outside of Boston, he relieved a man named Artemis Ward. And Artemis Ward had been kind of the leader up to that point. And Artemis Ward left and, and never participated in the revolution again. He was so pissed off to be relieved by George Washington. And uh, I guess years later, when the war is won, Washington's doing his first presidential parade. And he reroutes the parade to go right by Artemis Ward's house. And there's like absolutely no record that he like stopped and was like being, you know, friendly or anything like that. He literally just rerouted the parade to like stick it in his nose. Yeah. Um, like love stuff you. like that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you got the first death bomb. It wasn't me. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. We were worried about that. And uh, yeah, I'm behind. That. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe I'll censor it. <laughs> All right. Very good, Charlie. All right. Our last segment to the show is Words to the World. And this is where I give the guests the last word. Charlie, you can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? Yeah. So there's probably two types of people who are listening to this right now. There are the analysts who maybe you're newer, maybe you don't have the skills that you think that you need. Uh, you're probably stressed. You might be dealing with imposter syndrome. I know because that's exactly where I was when I started. I had no clue what I was doing. To those individuals, I would give two pieces of, pieces of advice. First of all, reach out because there is a really robust community here. This profession is unique because it was made by people people who didn't have training, they didn't have a textbook to follow, they just kind of went in there and figured it out. The other thing I would say to those people are, you know, you go to college classes and you see professors and you read books and you see the authors and you go to conferences and you see presenters and you listen to this podcast and you see all these people and you say, wow, that, that person is an expert. That person really has it all figured out. The dirty secret is that no one has it all figured out. There are no experts. We're all making it up as we go. There are no adults in the room. We are all struggling with something. So if you do reach out, you're going to find somebody who is a human being, who doesn't have all of the answers, who has been where you've been. The other thing that that means, though, is that eventually you're going to overcome your challenge. You're going to learn. You're going to grow. When you do you've officially become the second type of person. And when you overcome those challenges, when you learn just that that one thing that you really need to know today to get through your day, don't wait to become an expert that knows it all to share it. Because again, that day will never come. There are so many forums to share little tidbits of knowledge. I saw Seth Potts did a video for you the other day where he was just going through and you know showing some quick tips in Excel. Uh, there are white papers, there are conferences, there are message boards. There are so many ways to let people know that you know how to do one thing. And there is a ton of value in knowing how to do one thing if you teach other people how to do it. So that would be my words to the world. Be a mentee. And if you're ready, be a mentor. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you giving me just enough to talk bad about you later. But I do appreciate you being on the show, Charlie. Thank you so much. And you be safe. Thank you so much for having me. You as well.
Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.